Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and enabling biotechs to build on-demand teams. Check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Samir Unzain, co-founder and CEO at Aya Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Samir. Thank you for the invitation, Rahul. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast. Wonderful. So Samir, to kick us off, talk to us about you know the arc of your career, what got you interested in what you're working on now, and we can go from there. Sure. So the arc of my career probably started, it sounds very young, but it probably started when I was 10 years old, actually. So my mum took me to the movies, 1993, to see a movie which I know for a fact has influenced many, many molecular biologists, Jurassic Park. So I remember going into the cinema and specifically there's the moment where you realize the power of DNA in the lab. And from that moment on, really, I became very, very interested in molecular biology. And so that led to my progression through education. I did a bachelor's in, in biochemistry with molecular biology. The timing of my bachelor's was interesting, actually. It's very relevant to where I am today. So I started my bachelor's degree in 2001 when the draft human genome was published for the world. And I remember explicitly at the time, this huge surprise that happened in the community of people who are interested in genetics and interested in that fundamental question of what is our book of life? How is our genome encoding our biology and how can this be leveraged for disease and curing all diseases? But you may remember, Rahul, there was this huge surprise, which was we were expecting hundreds of thousands of, of genes. And in the end, the book of life told us we had a similar number and component of genes as the humble fruit fly or the worm. And that was really the initiation of my whole career that led to hire because from that moment on, I became quite obsessed with what is 98% of your DNA doing that isn't coding for proteins, for messenger RNAs? And how is this DNA, which at the time was called junk DNA, potentially involved in all the unique characteristics that make us the species we are? But more importantly, even at that stage... I think my interest was, well, maybe these unique characteristics are also linked to how we go on to develop disease. So after my bachelor's degree at the University of Leeds, I, I moved to the University of Leicester to do a PhD in the laboratory of Sir Nilesh Somani, who was really a, a world leader in understanding the role of genetics, human genetics, and controlling cardiovascular diseases. And there I was very interested in the non-coding portion of the genome. So how are the regions of the genome that do not code for protein? How is genetic variation in those regions potentially linked to cardiovascular diseases? And what was becoming very apparent at that time, this was pre-mass parallel functional genomic approaches. This was using more comparative genomics. It was very clear that there's all these regions in the non-coding genome that are conserved, that have genetic variation linked to them and are somehow potentially involved in disease. So my career path was purely academic, basically most of my career. I was really focused on how do elements in the non-coding genome control gene expression, transcription. That was really my passion, both in cardiovascular development and then ultimately disease. I then left after my PhD and did postgraduate studies in London, again, focusing on these regulatory elements in the genome, these non-coding regulatory elements. And that was around 2010, where we had another, I would say, second shock to the system, which was most of this non-coding DNA, in particular, these regulatory elements, 
was being transcribed, was producing RNA. And we'd always thought of RNA as an intermediate between the genetic code and the code for synthesizing proteins. But actually, most of the RNA is not coding for protein. It's highly dynamically expressed. It's very specific. And it's associated with all these regulatory sequences in the, in the non-coding genome that we realized were becoming very important in disease development for two reasons. They are the site of most of the common genetic variation that is linked to common and chronic diseases. And it's also where all this epigenetics is happening, which we realize is, is really important for controlling cell identity and potentially disease-driving cell states. So then I actually moved to Switzerland, my final kind of path as a research fellow, and then I became a group leader. And really when I went to Switzerland was where the synthesis of higher began. So I moved to Lausanne, which is close to Geneva. I went there to really start deploying a combination of different sequencing-based omic approaches to start assessing the DART genome, and in particular, all of these RNAs produced by it, specifically in the context of heart disease and pathological remodeling in the heart that can lead to heart failure. And through that period of approximately six, seven years, our research group were one of the first to map this atlas and really start to identify a whole new class of potential therapeutic targets, which are very specific to different cell types in the heart and potentially involved in regulating identity of these cell types and how they change in response to stress. And a number of the targets that we discovered actually became the genesis for what we're doing at Higher Therapeutic, which is leveraging the RNA from the DART genome to very specifically and selectively control cell state transitions that drive disease in a very tissue-specific manner. Great. And Samir, talk to us a little bit about the current landscape as it relates to precision medicine and genomic medicines. So it's a rapidly growing and expanding landscape. I think the synergy or the convergence of all of these multi-omic approaches and the data science and the computational tools behind it has really illuminated the field's understanding that you have lots of interesting biological targets. But most of the biological targets, uh, the best way to drug them is by using genetic medicine approaches, whether that is, for example, targets linked to genetic mutation, CRISPR, or genome editing-based approaches, or whether it's targets linked to gene regulation, where we can start using RNA-targeting genetic medicines, in particular, for example, antisense oligonucleotides and uh, small interfering RNAs. And of course, in this specific space of the dark genome, I think another area that is going to become very important is leveraging the insights of these RNAs that are doing all of these interesting things, controlling cell states, to reverse engineer that to actually create RNA medicines based on that information. And I think the ability to deliver RNAs, obviously primarily messenger RNAs, is really raising the spectra that in the future, the insights we're building in this space could lead to whole new types of RNA medicines as well. And so Samir, would love to understand your own entrepreneurial journey of when you came up with the idea and decided to pursue it, what that looked like for you, what was the support system around you for that? And then specifically as it relates to something that is very much on the cutting edge of scientific innovation, and perhaps there's not a lot of data to support some of these avenues that you're exploring. So to be fully transparent, I never actually had any ambitions to become an entrepreneur or to found a biotech. Literally, that was the last moment in my journey. My obsession was really understanding the fundamental biology around the regulatory genome. But because the work I was doing was in areas that were highly translatable, so particularly fibrosis, at a certain point, I realized that many of the issues linked to developing antifibrotic drugs both in the heart as well as in other tissues, could be remedied by focusing on these targets that we started to discover. 
And the reason was I realized quite early on that when we're trying to drug fibrosis, we're typically trying to drug these really important pleiotropic regulators of fibrosis, these protein coding targets, which by their very nature are involved in signaling all over the body. And so when you drug them, you might have an on-target antifibrotic effect in the tissue of interest. But typically, for example, if you start drugging TGF-beta signaling, I think is a good example. What happens? You have unbearable on-target tox safety signals everywhere else. And the DART genome was providing us with targets, for example, our lead target for cardiac fibrosis, a long non-coding RNA called WISPR, which were really important regulators of fibroblast cell states in fibrosis, but they were exclusive to an individual tissue. For me personally, in the creation of HIA was, well, we have a whole target space that can regulate fibrosis, but the targets are very tissue specific. So this whole issue of on-target tox and pleiotropic effects could potentially be alleviated. And that actually was the driver. So once we started thinking in that way, I actually, when you ask about support system, it was actually a, a Boston-based support system called uh, Mass Challenge, which had a European site. And I was very fortunate that it was in Lausanne, Switzerland. So I actually, while I was still an academic, applied to Mass Challenge with this concept. And that was really the initial into thinking about translating this biology in terms of creating a biotech company from a commercial perspective. And what does the entrepreneurial ecosystem look like in Switzerland right now, perhaps specifically in biotech? So I think it's accelerating and it's becoming quite an attractive and interesting ecosystem. Of course, Switzerland has a history of innovation in the pharmaceutical industry. Big Pharma is there, but it also has a history in early discovery biology and applying that biology to new types of technologies, whether it's sequencing-based technologies and others. And there's definitely, at the earliest stages, a lot of support for scientists who are in an academic environment to make that transition. I think once you've made that transition with the early support, of course, there are then further hurdles. Obviously, biotech, preclinical drug development, very expensive. That initial financing that allows you to do a lot of that de-risking and bridging is uh, quite capital intensive. And I think there, from what I'm seeing, obviously, the US ecosystem, especially the risk appetite that you associate with US investors is still much more advanced. But I think Switzerland is definitely starting to position itself as a very interesting place to build biotech companies. Yeah, great. And on the topic of financing, I think many entrepreneurs are quite embarrassed when they think about how they went about fundraising and reading the first pitch deck. Talk to us about your experience in terms of what those first pitches look like and the evolution of your approach to fundraising since then. Oh, wow. I mean, probably like many scientific founders and CEOs of biotechs, my first pitch decks were very, very data heavy. The value proposition wasn't very clear. And it was kind of a double whammy in a way because very data heavy, assuming that investors even knew what the dark genome was. Two, three years ago, this was still a very, very early value proposition. So I had a hard lesson very, very fast in how you have to distill a narrative and express your value proposition in a way that becomes accessible to people who are very knowledgeable and experienced in venture capital, in building biotechs, but leveraging your technology or your insights into a language that immediately makes sense to them. Okay, great. So now with that background, let's talk about where you are from a development perspective at Haya and what you're hoping to achieve over the next year or so. Sure. So Haya has a pipeline of targets evolving specifically in the fibrosis space. So these are dark genome tissue specific regulators of myofibroblast activity. And our lead program is an RNA that is specifically modulates the activity of cardiac fibroblasts. So what we've been able to show in a number of different preclinical models 
is that whenever you have fibrosis in the heart, which leads to heart failure, this is associated with this target. And when you start to drug this target, in our case, using oligonucleotides, you have a potent antifibrotic effect. So with our LEAD program, which our initial patient population we're targeting is patients who are symptomatic for heart failure, with the underlying driver of that being a rare genetic disease, so non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where we know the burden and the progression of fibrosis in these patients is a critical driver, unfortunately, of the endpoints that they suffer. So that's our first clinical indication. With our lead asset, we're now entering into IND-enabling GLP tox studies, safety studies. And with our current projection, we anticipate to be going into the clinic the second half of 2024. Wonderful. And talk to us a little bit about, you know, having a distributed team in the US, in Switzerland, we're recording this now, and, and you're in Boston. Yeah. And from a team building and cultural congruency perspective, perhaps what are the ways that you've seen that makes sense for a team of your size? So I think to be transparent, it's a challenge. I mean, time zones are challenging. Of course, the COVID experience has definitely, I would say, improved conceptually the concept of working via Zoom, via Slack, via Teams. So we leverage that type of communication quite a lot. And we try as much as possible to actually move team members between the sites. So very, very frequently, different members of the team will travel between the sites. We tend to annually or biannually have site get together. So I think for us, it's all about communication, 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 whether that's in person or whether that's via these remote mediums. I think also in terms of the type of teams that we have at Hire, we have real deep biology and computational scientists at one end of the, I would say, the platform. And then on the other side, we have real product developers. So people who are really focused on preclinical drug development, getting it into clinic. And, and those two hemispheres of the company definitely have different ways of working. And I think one challenge and one thing we try to spend a lot of time doing is bridging those two ways of thinking, because we actually believe that many of the key aspects of product development are fundamental to the discovery stage, where it's very much deep biology and data science driven. But then on the reverse, we consider it kind of like a yin and a yang. A lot of the capabilities and the skill set of the early discovery biologists and uh, the computational biologists, you can actually leverage on the product development side. So it's an area where we try to really focus on building a synergy between those two different mindsets. Yeah. And Samir, on that point, going back to fundraising and particularly for some of the aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening, what are some of the things that have come up in those types of conversations, particularly given the stage of development and company building that you're in now that have surprised you in the context of investor conversations? So I think absolutely some investors have a perspective with respect to you know distributed teams and how effective that is with respect to the different functions that they act upon. But I think overall, there's an understanding that it does work and it can work. And I think COVID has proven that. In terms of just the investor perspective on a company like Hire, and I think many of the audience will have maybe fundamental omic-based discovery platforms or platform-type technologies, what is becoming very, very clear is platform is really great when you're thinking about a long-term pipeline and the attractiveness there, but you need to validate that platform as fast as possible in advanced, for example, companies like ours, translatable in vivo proof of concept models and nominate development candidates as fast as possible. So there is definitely a laser focus on how are you getting your asset to clinic? What is the roadmap? What is the path? How are you going to do that efficiently, both in terms of time and resource? And that is something that I think over the last year has definitely come into focus from an investor perspective. 
Yeah, I certainly agree as well. So talk to us a little bit about how you went about determining, you know, which indications to select first and what your own indication selection framework looked like. So for our first organ or indication of heart failure, that was driven by the biology and the science, (laughs) actually. But then obviously, once we had this very compelling in vivo data, we then had to think we can't go into large heart failure indications. So then it was really, what are the best patient population that allows us to get clinical proof of concept rapidly and effectively? So that really was a driver for selecting this small patient population with well-defined mechanism that is associated with their disease. And there's a well-defined association of the disease driving process in those patients. So Mm. non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Obviously, with clinical proof of concept in that patient population, you could rapidly imagine taking our molecule into larger patient populations suffering with heart failure as a consequence of cardiac fibrosis. On some of the novel programs, so we have programs now in pulmonary fibrosis, in liver fibrosis, in kidney fibrosis. These were driven by many of the common type of things that you could imagine. So how important is fibrosis in that tissue, in specific well-defined patient populations and indications where fibrosis is a driver? How accessible are those tissues to your modalities that you're using? So in terms of thinking about delivery, biodistribution, exposure of your uh, modality, How accessible are those tissues from a perspective of building the right type of data sets to assess them from a multi-omic approach? So all of these classical considerations drive indication selection for us. And we talked a little bit about you leveraging computational approaches and having some data scientists on your team. I'm curious what your perspective is on where we're headed as a sector, you know, particularly as we apply machine learning at the intersection of, of biology and what you're looking forward to, as well as perhaps some challenges that you foresee. Oh, that's a really big question. I think now if you're working in, I would argue, any form of drug development to change tissue homeostasis or cell biology, you are going to become a data science company. I think fundamentally to understand how these processes are happening and how your interventions can have disease modifying effects means using a plethora of different data sets, be that omic data sets or other types of imaging data sets, you name it. And therefore, we're all going to be in the drug development space using advanced computational biology approaches, machine learning approaches, etc. So I think that is the future. And I think it's here already. I think many people overemphasize the use of ML and AI and many of the computational tools and things we're developing internally involve machine learning algorithms. But I think we very much believe in human intuited or human guided machine learning tools. I think there's lots of intrinsic insights into biology, which require some perspective from the human side. So I think if I talk about challenges, I think how you interpret big data that comes out of these analyses is still very, very important and guides many, many aspects of these very sophisticated computational approaches. And so that's how we see the use of data science is providing a human-guided intuitive approach, leveraging these advanced computational tools for rapid big data analyses and interpretation. Thanks for sharing that. I'm curious how If you were to reflect, how has your role evolved from the very early days of founding Haya to now as you're rapidly growing the team and how you knew to make sure that you were evolving and what that evolution of your own responsibilities looked like? Early days, I was still very much 
biology mod. So really guiding, providing a lot of guidance and perspective on the science, the biology and the discovery, which was my background. But quite rapidly, as the process started engaging with investors and building the company, I rapidly made a transition, which was building a team that can really drive forward and innovate around the biology discovery. Building a team that can then take that and really think about product development. So trying to find those people as fast as possible. And then realizing quite rapidly that I essentially had three jobs to do as the emerging CEO of the company, which was to provide the vision on the strategy from the science to product, to hire a team to execute on that vision, and to resource the team to deliver on that promise. And there, essentially, I see the three things I I basically spend most of my time doing now. And right now, actually, most of my time is we've got a great team. We're in a growth phase. And now most of my time is spending how can I resource this team to take the next step in transitioning the company as we're advancing towards clinic. I'm on the resource side of the equation at the moment. Yeah. And with every entrepreneurial journey, there's lots of ups and downs and our own approach to how we navigate those ups and downs is critical. I'm curious what you've learned about what works for you in being able to handle all the oscillations during any given day. And then how does that translate to how you approach your team as it relates to all of those ups and downs? I mean, this is a really ongoing process. So I think one of the characteristics that I realized that I had was a lack of patience very much like to move fast with things. And I think sometimes that in itself can have positive aspects, but it can also lead to challenges as you're building a team and you're trying to execute on specific plans. So one thing I've learned is sometimes you just have to take a step back, put things into perspective and be a little bit more patient in terms of expectations and deliverables. And that's really a self-reflection that I've developed over time. And also how you manage your team as they navigate all of these ups and downs as well. The way I am doing that is being authentic to myself because you can be self-aware on where you need to improve. For example, maybe be a bit more patient at certain moments. But at the same time, the moment you detach from your authentic self, I think there that causes ultimately in the future potential problems with team members. So I'm relatively transparent and authentic with the positives and the negatives as we're building the team, because I was told by mentors and people in the community early in the process, the biggest challenge and the biggest driver of success is going to be the team. And the biggest challenge is building the team and building an effective team. And that is a key driver for ultimate success. And that is definitely an experience that we all have gone through. And I think you just have to be open and say, hey, mess this up, learn from this, and let's talk about it. Yeah, great advice, Samir. And a very important realization. Certainly, if we don't put our authentic selves out there, we can't expect anyone else on our team to do so as well. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Samir, let's talk a little bit now about the future of biotech. And from your vantage point, what are certain themes or trends that perhaps we're not taking advantage of right now that we should be? And where do you think we should be spending more time? I think this rapid acceleration and convergence of all these omic data sets that are starting to be derived in so many different types of contexts, be that in patient samples, et cetera, coupled with really an explosion in the toolbox of modalities we have to start drugging genetic targets. I think this is actually opening up a completely different landscape when we think about drug targets. And I think now I know that you had on your podcast, some people in the same space as me, and I think they're probably facing the same challenges, which is we need to be more open-minded when we're thinking about 
target class and when we're thinking about the potential value of targets in this space. And I think the convergence of toolbox modalities and how we get those modalities to specific places and the insights into the whole genome, the dark genome, really should, I hope, foster and drive an appreciation of the dark genome as a, a bona fide target space for very safe and effective medicines. And I think that's what I would, obviously, from a biased perspective, like to see going forward in the space. One last question, Samir, before we wrap up, and if I could ask you to reflect on your own journey over the last couple of years, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know? Great question. Maybe I have said this before, I think, but there are two quotes which I now appreciate a lot more, which I think link to both the concept of the biology and thinking about next generation therapeutics and the target space and personally in terms of how you interact and how you manage people and how you build teams. And I think those two quotes, one is by actually Friedrich Nietzsche, which is convictions are a bigger enemy to the truth than a lie itself. And I think the reason I like that is because this whole space, biological target space, we and others working on. Even today, a lot of people have a conviction that everything that's happening that's important in a cell and in biology and therefore disease is protein-centric. All of this non-coding stuff, it's junk, okay? That's a very, very, very strong conviction. And so I think from an academic or a company perspective, when you want to develop breakthrough medicines in areas where we've had very little success, we need to start loosening up some of our strong convictions around what's the right target space, what's the right modality. We need to be open-minded. And I think that also applies to how you build teams and interact with teams. And, and linked to that is, it's an Emerson quote, foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. And I think those are two quotations, which I think my younger self would have valued. And especially when you really start to think about what they mean in all mm. aspects of what we're doing. Wonderful. Well, Samir, on that salient advice, it was a pleasure having you on. Thanks for joining us today and wishing you and your colleagues at Haya continued success. Thank you so much for the invitation and really appreciate it. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.